0: I might warn you. So, everybody stick your feet out, wiggle your toes, who knows, I might step on them before the night's over. (laughs) Loosen them up. You can step on mine later and pay me back, that's okay, because if I give it out, i got to take it, but I'm going to be reading God's Word, I'll just tell you that. Turn to Genesis chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and it's our kind of starting over point, because last week was the ark from Pastor Bob. So, in verse 1 it says, 9-1, then God blessed Noah and his sons. We'll come back to that, bless his sons in a minute. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Well, one reason I chose the title, that exact blessing was given to Adam and Eve back in chapter 1. I'm not going to make you turn there, but here's what it said. It's Genesis 1, 28. It said, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Subdue the animals. So it's a redo of that same blessing. God has not forgotten what he said. He's just now given the same blessing and challenge to Noah. Fill the earth. Be fruitful. Let's read a couple more verses. Verse 2. It says, "...the fear and dread of you," in other words, you humans, "...will fall on all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground. On the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands." It ties into that whole subdue verse that Adam and Eve got. But it really, it's a blessing, um, if you think about it. God is blessing us, humanity, mankind. He made the animals afraid of us. Think how many big animals are out there. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. <laughs> They're afraid of us. They could eat me alive, and you too. But God put fear to protect us. But also, it should show you how fair God is. He's making them afraid for another reason we'll see in just a second in verse 3. He's being equal. Let me read verse 3. It says, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. He's making them afraid of us so we don't easily catch them and eat them. So he's just keeping like a level playing field is how I would put it. And by the way, this is the first documented verse. Let me say that again. Documented verse where man is given permission to eat animals. Now, did they back in chapter 3 through 8? We don't know. In other words, did Adam eat meat? I don't know. I will tell you, though, over in Revelation, it says the animals are going to eat straw, so it makes me think maybe not. I don't really know. And then some people have wondered, well, they were sacrificing animals. Yes, but did not ever say they ate them. They might have, might not. We don't know. Does it really matter? No, let's keep moving. Let me read the other half of three and then four with it. It says, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And because of that everything, you know, now I give you everything. I think it's probably a new thing personally, but that's just me. But in four, it says a little kind of a shift in tone here, a little shifting gears. It says, but when you do eat these animals, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. Lifeblood. Because in the Bible, in Scripture, blood is very important. The blood of the Lamb, that's pretty important, right? But if you look up in like a word search, there's ways you can search how many different ways a term is used in the Bible. The, the word blood is mentioned 357 times. That number doesn't mean a lot. But in other words, it's a lot of times. 1 John 1:7 is one of my favorite ones. It says this, The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, the blood of Jesus. But let's look at two more, one, new, one Old Testament, one kind of end time. So we'll look at both of them together. Leviticus, these are some of the Levitical laws. It says the life of the body is in its blood. This is why that prohibition is being given. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you. That's the Old Testament way of making atonement for your sin, making you right or making you righteous with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life. Think about that one on the cross. Blood given in exchange for a life, our life, that makes purification possible. That's a hint of Jesus' work on the cross. Then look at end times, Revelation. It says, how do we triumph? Us? We triumph over Satan by the blood of the Lamb. That's how we win. We win because Jesus won. So the blood is very important all through Scripture. Let's read a few more blood verses. Verse 5, it says, and for your lifeblood, the words, your blood in your own body, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. And the reason that animals in there, by the way, and if you get over in Leviticus further, there's kind of like rules and regulations of what happens if your ox gores somebody on accident. You would pay a ransom to fix that, or you would kill the ox. The owner kind of had a choice in some, some instances. There's all these ways you could fix that death, but there would be an accounting for it. But the, the human life is a little different, and we'll talk about that in a second. Let me read you a verse. I'm not going to make you turn once again. Let me read you Numbers 35, 31. Here's what it says. Do not accept a ransom, that pay off for accidental death, for the life of a murderer. And murderer is the key. Who deserves to die? They are to be put to death. Because in Scripture, I don't have time to read all the verses, it delineates between accidental death, self-defense, war, and murder. So that verse is talking about murder, like the willful taking of another human being's life. Verse 6 even goes a little deeper in our text. Let's read this verse tonight in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. In a way, that's describing capital punishment. Whoever sheds human blood pays with their own life. So as I've taught this before at Bible studies, different instances, a lot of people want to bring up And of course it's a question some of you are probably thinking too, what does that mean about abortion? It's a life. And if you weren't here, I don't know how long it's been, it seems to me at least six, eight, nine months ago, Pastor Dave taught a message listing all the verses of why we here at Calvary and most evangelical Christians, we take the position, life starts at conception, it's in the womb, it's a human life, and he gave us all the verses that document it. It was an awesome teaching. But under our current laws, that's not a capital offense. In other words, our current law doesn't call it murder. But there's other verses that address it in a different kind of what I would call a more roundabout way. And to make it clear, let's look at another verse out of Numbers. Numbers 35, 33. Let's read it together. Do not pollute the land where you are. How will we do that? Bloodshed. Bloodshed pollutes the land. And atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Now, this is the Old Testament law, so we can't get crazy. People have twisted this verse, by the way, and went and sort of attacked abortion doctors and clinics. That's not what that verse means. But it says our land. Think about our nation right now. Our land is really unclean in God's eyes, not because what we've done personally, as a nation, we're, we kind of dropped the ball in this area, I would say. But let me be re- rather clear, because that verse also, when we prayed to start with, I kind of talked about condemnation. There's likely in a room this size ladies that may have had an abortion before you were saved, maybe. And there's also guys, by the way, myself included, at one point, long, long time ago, before I was saved, I paid for an abortion. I later found out the child wasn't mine, but that doesn't matter. I still paid for it. So maybe if you're a man or a woman in that category, you're feeling guilty. Your whole life has been like a guilt trip. Oh, my gosh, I had an abortion. That's your old life. Even if you're here tonight and that just happened, God is a God of forgiveness, of grace, and mercy. He doesn't care about what you did yesterday, even an hour ago. He cares about what you're going to do from this moment forward. If you will commit your life to Jesus, because think of what Scripture says. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Don't feel guilty about past dumb decisions like I've made my whole life, like maybe some of you have made. You get that starting over, that do-over we're talking about tonight in Genesis. Does that make sense? So if you feel even guilty at all, let's pray about that as the service ends tonight. We would love to give, we have classes, we have programs we'd love to reference you to. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. It's all about what we're going to do from this moment forward. Back to our text, verse 7. As for you, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. This is the second time God has told Noah this and his family. He just told them that in verse 1. It kind of shows me God's serious about this repopulate the earth thing. He's wiped it clean with the flood. He wants it repopulated. So much so, he's repeating himself. Verse 8. I'm going to read 8 through 11, actually. Then God said to Noah and to his sons who were with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark, and every living creature on earth. I established my covenant with you, and we'll dwell on this for a minute. Never again will all, that's a key, all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So it's not just a covenant. We sometimes think it's a covenant with us, with human beings. He says, with every living creature, it's a covenant. But as I was studying this, I figured it was a good time for us to look at kind of what I call the big five covenants, because we know the word covenant, but maybe we don't exactly know what they are, or if we do, it's still a good time for a refresher. So let's look at a few. We're going to look at five. The noahic covenant is what the first one's called, the one we're reading about. And it's God basically saying, I'm not going to flood the earth. I'm not going to wipe it out. And he's going to give us the rainbow as its sign. That'll come up in our text in a few minutes. Next, we have the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, I'm just summarizing really quick because we don't have time to go in deep. There's a lot more to these covenants, but these are kind of the high points. In that covenant, and we'll get to that, it's in Genesis, by the way. He promises Abraham a land. The land is Israel. It's a promise. It's a covenant. That's why they still have it right now. He also promises Abraham many descendants and a blessing. That blessing is his lineage, and it continues from Abraham all the way to us. Who's that blessing? Jesus. I'll help you out. Okay, let's look at a few more. The Mosaic Covenant. Notice a pattern? They're all guys' names. All these kind of Bible heroes. They're attached to a person. This one, though, is a little different. It's conditional. And conditional means you do this, God does that. It's kind of like... Tied to the law, to obedience. It had defined blessings and curses. That's what we call the old covenant or the you know, law, the law. Next, we have a Davidic covenant. That one is really special to us because he promises us a Messiah, Jesus. He also promised he'd be descendant of David's lineage, which he is. Here's the best part. He's going to reign forever, and his kingdom will last forever. And if you follow him, you'll be in it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes. Let's see one more. This is the best one of all. It ties into the Davidic covenant, but it's really what we call and teach here as the new covenant. This one's Jesus. He promised us to forgive all of our sins through a mediator, the Messiah. We know that Messiah is Jesus. And also, remember, the veil was torn. God's people will also, on this covenant... Have direct, intimate, personal access 24 7. We don't need a man. We don't have to go to the Holy of Holies one day a year with a rope around our leg and hope he doesn't die in there. We go 24 7. You go right now. You can pray to the Lord 24 7 because of this new covenant. And if you want to look it up, here's what's interesting. It was predicted back in Jeremiah, and I'll put the verses up there for you to notice if you want. It's Jeremiah 31, it's 31 through 34 of the verses. But it took effect. It was predicted in Jeremiah, took effect on the cross. So those are what we call the big five covenants. Now you're a Bible scholar. Let's keep moving. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of that covenant. This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between you, between me and you, and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come, including us, by the way. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and my rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Now, we don't know, but it's likely that no rainbow would ever appear. It may have popped out as God was telling know of this. We don't know. But it kind of brings up a question in my mind as I was studying. You know, what does the rainbow represent to our unsaved world? We all know. We see it on t-shirts. We see it at certain places. It just kind of confirms scripture. What does Satan do? He comes to steal, kill, destroy. He's trying to steal God's rainbow twist it for his evil purposes, and most of the people that wear that rainbow, they may not know it, but they're really plummeting toward death if they don't change their ways. Satan has deceived them. But here's what I think is kind of ironic in, in a way. It makes me smile. When, you know, some people get mad when they see the rainbow, and they, in their mind it's being misrepresented. Here's how I see it. You can make your own mind up, and I'm going to use a sports analogy. Any Gator fans in here? I knew it. Okay. Well, you'll like this one then. If you're not, then you'll like this one. When people misrepresent, wear God's rainbow, and they're living an inappropriate lifestyle as far as the Bible goes, it would be like a Gator fan wearing a huge FSU shirt on their back. They're wearing God's rainbow. So when you see it, don't get mad they're flying the flag of the right team. They may not know that's what they're doing, I just, that's how I see it, and it makes me kind of smile. See, now you're laughing. You get it. They think they're on one team, but they're wearing the flag of another. It's God's rainbow. You can't change that. God's word never changes. It's his rainbow, clearly. Just because you wear it wrong doesn't mean it's not his anymore. So let's circle back to us, though. Let's go back to us. What should the rainbow mean to us? Specifically, the one in the sky. Well, that's our first main point, if you're taking notes. Whenever we see the rainbow, here's what we should think about. Not just it's cool, it looks awesome, it's beautiful. We should think about God's faithfulness, because He's faithful to never destroy the earth. That's what the sign is, "I will not do this again." And His forgiveness. Faithfulness, forgiveness. So next time you see the rainbow, and in Florida they happen a lot, you know, all that moisture in the air. Just think about how good God is. He gave us a sign of his faithfulness and his forgiveness that I will never do that again. And I forgave the world for acting terribly. By the way, he promised never to bring a flood. Does that mean he'll never destroy it again ever? Well, for the most part, but if we get over to end times, and we're going to read a verse out of 2 Peter that talks about that, there's a thing called the Day of Judgment. Day of judgment. Let's read about it. By these waters also the world of that time, what we're reading about, was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for what? Fire. Fire. No more water. He didn't say anything about fire. Reserved for fire. They are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But then look what 8 and 9 say. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. I want to talk about that for just a second. You know, a lot of people take those two verses, that 8 and 9, and kind of use them to explain other things that they're really not intended for. If you look at this passage, you know scripture has to be in context. A day is like a thousand years means the day of judgment. In other words, God is not slow. It's taken a while. It's not a reason to make all of a sudden a long earth theory up. This is talking about the day of judgment. We can't just cherry pick that verse and go land it over somewhere else and try to explain things that's not meant to explain. Scripture interprets scripture, but it's always in context because I think Pastor Davis said this before in here. There's one meaning, many applications. A lot of applications, but one meaning. The meaning is, The day of judgment is what's gonna be like a thousand years. So, God hadn't forgotten the earth will be judged by fire someday. Just because it hadn't happened yet, to us it seems like thousands of years. In God's eyes, that's like a day. He will do it when all the people have heard the gospel, He wants to hear it. Then, Scripture says it'll come like a thief in the night. So, we're supposed to be ready. Are we ready? I hope so. If you're not, come see me at the end of the night, and we'll pray about that, and we'll get you ready. So, let's get back to our text, verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's not Shemp, Curly, and Mo. It's Shem, Ham, and Japheth. <laughs> now, I just dated myself with that comment. I hear some people laughing that are my age. They knew exactly who those three names were. Then it goes on to say, Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah. And look what this next part says. And from them came the people who scattered over the whole earth. So all of the earth's population came out of the boat. Is another way you could look at it. All nations came from these people, Noah and those three sons. Let's go back to Noah again. Verse 20. This is kind of where our story gets a little off the rails, just to warn you. Um, It's one of the most interesting sections of the Bible, I'll say. Verse 20. You better pray for me. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered. More on that uncovered later. Inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan... Saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Now, this is the first mention in the Bible of drunkenness because it just said he drank too much wine, he got drunk, and sounds like he passed out, essentially. I just want to read us a great proverb about alcohol, because alcohol is a big problem, and we'll talk about that in a second. But let's look at a great proverb describing kind of the attraction of alcohol. Because it starts out looking attractive according to this proverb. Do not look on the wine when it's red. In other words, when it looks all great, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly, look what it follows up with. At the lap. In other words, in the end, it bites like a serpent. And that's not a hangover, by the way. It will bite you and wreck your life, and it stings like a viper. Then look what it says. Your eyes will see strange things, like Noah probably saw some strange stuff, and even worse, your heart will utter perverse things. That shows you what alcohol can do for you. You know, people see it sometime. well, alcohol just relaxes me. Well, if you look up, you know, I, I am a nurse, some of you know that. Medically, alcohol is a depressant. You know what it mainly depresses, though? Your inhibitions. It makes you do crazy things, utter perverse things out of your heart, your mouth. You'll do things you never intended. You wake up and people have to tell you what you did that was so foolish. People have wrecked their lives. And I'll just use myself as an example. For many years I used to drink and um, thought I had no problem. My wife told me otherwise, but like a lot of guys I wasn't listening. I thought I had it under control. But for me, I'm, I have a hard problem. You know, some of you might be okay to have one drink of wine. That's not what we're talking about, one glass of wine with, with dinner. But for others of you, you might be more in my category, my one will quickly turn into 21. Like for me, it's super easy to say none. I don't, I don't care. I don't miss it. I don't drink. Give me some bubbly water or some, you know, something else, soda. So zero is super easy for me. Maybe some of you need to think about zero. In other words, is alcohol affecting your life in a negative way? You might not think you're drunk, but is it changing your behavior? Is it changing how you treat people? Is it making you say mean things to your family because of that depression of your inhibitions? Are you not yourself? Because drunk is really like a spectrum. It's not just Noah passed out in his tent. If you're behaving differently in any manner, I would say... It's changed you. Let's go back to what I said about the rainbow. Satan, what's he want to do? Steal, kill, destroy. We have, as Christ followers, who lives in you? The Holy Spirit. You ever wonder why they call alcohol spirits? It's the spirit of the enemy. Everything it does, it's a poor imitation of God. If you have the Holy Spirit, some people get the gift of tongues. If you have the gift of the alcohol spirit, you'll speak in tongues all right, but it's a mean, angry tongue that nobody wants to hear. It's a counterfeit of God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, tons of people are deceived by it. If that's you, once again, I would love to pray with you about that. We have two great programs here at Calvary Chapel. We have Celebrate Recovery that meets on Thursday nights. If you're a man, we also have Men's One Step that meets on Wednes—I mean Monday night. We have programs to help you if that's your stronghold. Because all of us have a stronghold. Some people, it's alcohol. Some people, it's pornography, like Brian talked about. Some people, it's gambling. Some people, it's video games. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's rage. It could be a lot of things. God promises freedom, though, through the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be free. Free indeed. Back to our text. I'm free from my soapbox for a second. Okay. Back to this other controversy. I didn't even touch the controversy yet. You might be shocked by that after that little alcohol speech. That wasn't in my notes, by the way. Lay uncovered. That's an interesting word in that verse. Let me read it again. He became drunk and lay uncovered. And I've read that before many times, but I really, really on these Wednesday nights try to study deep and look at what's really, you know, different languages even. And I never noticed, but I I did kind of see a reference to it and checked it out. If you look at Leviticus, all those prohibitions and all the rules and regulations, it's in Leviticus 18 if you want to read it for yourself. And it's verses 6 through 18. It says, Do not lay uncovered with your mother. Do not lay uncovered with your sister. Do not lay uncovered with your sister's wife, I mean your mother's sister. It's all these prohibitions, it's some kind of sexual activity. And we don't know, but some people believe because of the way, it's the same exact word by the way, is Noah just passed out and his skirt flew up or tunic, whatever you want to call it, or did somebody maybe uncover him? In other words, did somebody pull his skirt up? We don't know. And I would never go there and speculate, but because of the wording it could be, and if it was that case, it would, in my mind, explain a lot. Other people, though, just think maybe his son Ham made fun of him. In other words, he came out and made fun of him. But when we read a few more of these verses, it'll kind of explain why I think maybe, who knows, maybe somebody did uncover him. That would have been very bad if they did, by the way. Either way, he got disrespected, um, and we don't know exactly what Ham did, by the way, and here's where I would land on this one. We don't know what he did, but I can tell you what he didn't do. He did not do the right thing. He clearly did not do the right thing because he saw his father naked, whether he's the one that uncovered him or not, doesn't really matter. He went outside and talked to his brothers about it. That's clearly not good. Which brings up our, our next main point for taking notes. Many times, not doing the right thing is just as bad as doing the wrong thing. In other words, and we call it in scriptures sometimes the sin of omission. In other words, I didn't do what I was supposed to. What Ham should have done is fixed it. Instead of fixing it, he goes outside and sounds like he gossiped or did something with his brothers about it. He clearly did not do the right thing. That's what we know. So it doesn't really matter exactly what happened, like I said before. Let's read what the other two brothers do, the ones that do do the right thing. Verse 23, it says, But Shem and Japheth, those other two sons, they took a garment, they laid it across their shoulders, they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father. They didn't want to look at him. They, they turned away, and they say backed up with a kind of a drape to hide him. But look at what 24 says. Now, I'm reading the NIV, so I'm going to read that translation. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine, from his drunken stupor, he found out what his youngest son had done to him. But many, many other translations say when he awoke, he knew what his son had done, had done, but he knew it. Which makes me think maybe he knew, hey, I went to bed, I was covered up, and now I'm not. Something happened. I don't know who did it, but it's probably that dang ham. So look what he says next. And by the way, when I look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for that, what happened when he said something was, I knew what he, he had done, it's what we would call in English an action verb. There's an action insinuated by the Hebrew word they use like some sort of action happened. Maybe, once again, uncovering. Who knows? But look what his response is, verse 25. Cursed be Canaan. Not Ham. We'll get to that in a second. Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So, why did Canaan get the curse and not Ham who actually did it. You remember, Ham's the one that saw him. He went outside and talked to the brothers, gossiped, made fun, who knows, ridiculed. Why curse his son? It's Noah's grandson too, by the way. So he didn't curse his son that did it. He cursed his grandson, Ham's son. I'll give you three possibilities. You know, sometimes I like to give you possibilities. I think you figured that out by now. Here's possibility number one, and it's a pretty strong one, I would say. If you go back to verse 1, chapter 9, 1, God, remember, he blessed the three sons. God blessed the sons. So Noah might be either refusing or maybe even unable to curse him because God had already blessed him. And we have a similar example. Remember the story of Balaam, where Balaam, they tried to get him to curse the Israelites, and he just couldn't do it. And if you want to read that story, it's over in Numbers chapter 22 and 3. And he couldn't because God had already blessed him. So maybe it's because God already blessed him. Maybe. Another possibility would be this curse on Canaan is more like a prophecy. It's a prophetic word speaking slavery into his future. And by the way, that does come true. It happens. So maybe it's a prophecy. Another possibility. The third one is probably the one I would default to because I've done it before in other brothers Maybe God just knows Canaan's heart. Maybe he knows at heart he's just not a good person. And God, being God, would know that. So he's cursing him in a way like he also didn't find favor with Cain's offering. Also, like, remember in Romans, back if you were here when I was teaching Romans and I was here the night we had to read that verse. What do he say about Esau, I hated him. It could be similar to that. In other words, and I made the case that night, it was about Esau's heart. It was about Cain's heart. God knows Can- Canaan's heart too, maybe. So one of those three, who knows? But either way, Canaan gets the curse. It's kind of interesting. Let's read a few more about the same curse. 26 says, this is Noah speaking. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. That's the good son, in a way. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. And by the way, this is the shim we get the word Semite from, anti-Semitism or the Jewish nations called Semites. But maybe you're thinking like me, well, then where's the H? Well, interestingly enough, it's a language problem. I did look it up to find out to, to tell us all. If you go back to the original languages the Bible was first put in after Hebrew, it was Greek and Latin. Greek and Latin don't have an SH sound, which I don't speak either the one, so I wouldn't know that unless I looked it up. So Shem becomes Sem, S-E-M. That's where we get the word Semite, anti-Semitism. So if we went back to the Hebrew, they would be Shemites, and it would be anti-Semitism. But now we've all learned Sem our whole life, so we can't fix it because we're speaking English. So it's just a language problem. But either way, this is where the lineage of Israel comes from, this son, Shem. Look what he says in 27. May God extend Japheth's territory, the other brother that did the right thing. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. And once again, later in Scripture, it's over in the book of um, Joshua, the Canaanites do become slaves. If you know that story, they're supposed to wipe them out, but they let a few live, and they end up enslaving them. So this is... It is a prophecy that kind of came true, if that's the reason, if it was a prophetic word. But here's another harder question. This is where i got to be careful. Have you ever wondered, because I do, and I did, as I read this, it jogged my memory. Our nation, you know, we claim our nation is built, what is it, one nation? Under God. Thank you, I was hoping you'd say that. Then how in the world did our founding fathers Ever owned slaves? They said they were Christians, they professed Christianity, they clearly personally enslaved people. And if you look at our um, Declaration of Independence, almost all of the signers had slaves. So, as a Christian, how did they justify that? Because I'm sure it wasn't just random. Well, as I looked into it and researched it, it's these two verses 26 and 27. They justified it by saying Canaan was cursed to be in slavery, and they used those two verses inappropriately. You know, our country has a terrible history, let's be honest. We stole the place from the American Indians. Most of our founding fathers were slave owners. Slavery is terrible, let's just be honest. It's a horrible thing, never should have happened. We're against it. We condemn it. But it happened. So it also caution you, you know, there's a movement out there called Christian nationalism. You ever heard of that one? That it's kind of like you'll see things like, and some of them look innocent, you know. I I stand for the flag, I kneel for the cross, and they want to put the flag right at the cross, just barely below. Our country is a terrible history. Let's be real. We stand on God's word. I love our country, I'm a veteran myself, I served. Many guys in this room served. I'm not speaking against our country, but our country doesn't have a very rosy past. What does our scripture and our word say? Does God ever condone that? He cursed Canaan specifically for a thing he did. He never gave a blanket approval of slavery. Now, there's a different thing that I've heard Pastor Dave speak on, like indentured servitude, where the Israelites, they would kind of sell themselves for seven years willingly to pay off debts. That's not the slavery we're talking about. This is outright real slavery, the same ones our founding fathers practiced. And by the way, if they were trying to justify their behavior with a Christian verse like these, in scripture, the the Jubilee year is the seventh year. You free everybody on the seventh year. Did we do that? No. We have a terrible history, let's be honest. That's why we stand on God's word. Much as we love our country, this overrules it, it just does. So don't ever forget our messy past and try to sugarcoat it, because I'm sorry, those guys behaved terribly. They just did. Which brings up our our third main point, and it's a play off an old nursery rhyme. Remember this one? But it wasn't so hot either, by the way. I like, this is sort of my version. Brown, olive, black, and white, all are equal, 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 in God's sight. God is never a fan of discrimination, never. That's why I love this church. I look around this audience right now, I see all shades of that same main point. Brown, light brown, dark brown, olive, white, black, and I love all of you, all the pastors do. This is a picture of what heaven's going to look like. Heaven is not going to have sections. We should get started down here. So, God is about equality. We are all equal in his sight. What does scripture always say? It's all about, what is it? It's not about the appearance. It's the heart. He cares about our hearts. All our hearts are the same color. All of them. Let's keep reading off my soapbox again. Verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 more years, is what that really means, But look at his total, 29. Noah lived a total of 950 years. That's a long life. How many kids could you have in that many years? Man. Enough of that. Let's go to chapter 10. Now, most of chapter 10 is a long list of family trees, lineages, descendants. And it says they all had sons. So we're going to read a few of these verses and get to kind of the, the, I think, a part that would... Teach us something, not just a list of family trees. We can find that in Luke of Jesus' lineage. Verse 6 says, jump to 6. So, chapter 10, verse 6 the sons of Ham, this kind of bad son, were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Then it says in verse 8, I'm going to jump to 8 now Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, if you read that too fast, he kind of sounds like an impressive guy, a mighty hunter before the Lord, but really that's not the meaning. If you really look into it, here's what his name, Nimrod, translates to revolt or rebel. And by the way, when I was a kid, Nimrod was like an insult. It was like moron. You, Nimrod, but you never hear that again unless it's a Bible verse. So most of you young people never even heard the name until tonight probably. But he's not a good guy. He was a mighty hunter. He started with animals, but later he hunts men. He's a mighty murderer is a better way to read that. He was very strong physically, but he was even more strong in wickedness. He's a super wicked guy. He's known, if you look up his history, as the world's first tyrant. But Jewish history, not our Bible, but Jewish history goes a little deeper And what they say about him, they say because of Nimrod specifically being a tyrant and like the world's first dictator, essentially, that men began to trust in Nimrod and themselves. It was all about self, not God. And Nimrod was the key reason. He told people, don't obey that God, obey me. He was like the first evil dictator. And we can get a, a small glimpse of his character. I'm not going to read all the lists. Verse 10 through 12 lists some of them. But he founded a lot of cities. One of them we're going to get to tonight, it's Babel. Which, by the way, Babel later becomes Babylon. So Babylon, you would have probably agree, that's a pretty wicked city, right? The other one is Nineveh. Think about this story. Where did Jonah not want to go because everybody was so wicked? Nineveh. Who founded those two and a few more? Nimrod. He's a terrible, evil man that abused people. He was the first tyrant, and not even, the tyrant's bad, but he turned people away from the Lord. So he's not a good guy, and he'll, he'll resurface in our next chapter that we'll cover in a few minutes. Skip down to verse 15 now. A little, little bit of a lineage. It says, Canaan, remember the one that got cursed, he was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, And many other ites I'm not going to mention. And all those ites, as I'm calling them, they all opposed Israel. So Canaan's lineage is terrible. That's why I made the case a while ago that I think God knew his heart, and that's probably why he got that curse instead of his dad. And then in 32 it says, These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. It's a long list, once again, of lineages. We don't need to read. It's just a lot of names. But here's what it says about those guys. From these, the nations spread out over the earth. Or did they, I would say. We're going to see in the next chapter. So now flip over to chapter 11. We're going to do the first tiny little section of 11 because I would make the case, I think 11 really belongs the storyline. You'll see what I mean when we read It belongs more with chapter 10. And by the way, the Bible is inspired. We know that. Man might have written it, but God inspired it. It's all inspired by the Lord. But you may not know this part. We didn't come up with chapters and verses until around the year 1280 or 1320. It wasn't originally like that. It was long scrolls. So another way to put it, you can think in chapter 11 that we're going to read. Somebody in 1280 AD or 1320 put it where it is. I'm just going to shift it back to 10 where it reads, I think, better. Make your own minds up after we go through. Verse 1, 11-1, here's what it says. Now the whole world had one language in common speech. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And that Shinar, by the way, is later known as Babylonia. They only had one language, by the way, because they're all coming off the ark. It's those same guys that were speaking the same language, and those, their wives, their families likely, we don't know for sure, but that language likely was Hebrew. They were all speaking Hebrew because that's what they spoke when they got on the boat, we think, or the ark. I keep saying boat, but you know what I mean ark, by the way, right? But remember back to 9, God said, spread out, multiply, fill the earth. Did they? No, we just see they stopped in Shinar and settled there. But then, let's read some more, verse 3 and 4. They said to each other, these people that have now founded a city, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar, tar for mortar. I'll touch on that in a second. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, heavens, plural, don't miss the S, so that we will make a name for ourselves. In other words, we're full of ourselves. Let's make a big tower to proclaim how great we are. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. That's what God said to do. He said scatter. Now you see what Nimrod is telling people. Don't scatter. Build a city. Build a tower. Do like I'm doing. But think about why you would use tar as mortar in a tower. Does that make any sense to you? Well, let me help you out. Tar, or pitch, as it's sometimes called, is what Noah waterproofed the ark with. Why would you waterproof a tower? Makes no sense, does it? It does if you don't believe in God and you don't trust his rainbow. I've got to make a waterproof tower in case that flood comes back. That was man being man selfish. I'm going to build a waterproof tower in case that ever happens. It's not trusting, not listening, not believing in God with his rainbow. So why they even build the tower to start with? Not, forget it's waterproof. Let's get past that one. It's to reach the heavens, not heaven, because sometimes we read it quick. We think it's to reach God, to reach heaven. In other words, maybe they're doing it for a good reason. They're trying to reach the heaven, God. No, it said heavens, the stars, so, I'll give you two possible reasons of why they're building this thing. The first one would be astrology. Babylon later, and all those pagan years they were in, were known to be astrologists, worshiping the sun, worshiping sun gods, stars, moons, things like that. This is the foundation of Babylonian pagan religion. Possibly the same one we see in Revelation that's called the mystery of Babylon. It's worshiping the wrong thing. We don't want God, Jehovah. We want God, the stars, and the moon, and whatever that Nimrod told us to worship back to him again. See how that's all connected to chapter 10? Because he founded Babel. And then verse, the second part of four said, so that we may make a name for ourselves. So I would say the other strong possibility is astrology and also pride. They're prideful. Let us make a name for ourselves. We don't want to glorify God's name. Let's glorify my name, your name, our name. It's all about me. Let's look at a verse out of Proverbs. It talks about pride. Everyone with a proud heart, us included, this is us, is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he or she, I would add, will not go unpunished. If that's me, if that's you, you think God knows it? If God have a proud heart, does God know that? That verse says, I'll be punished, and so will you. But it's not just a sin of the world, like these people from Babel. You know, sometimes we think, oh, that's a worldly sin, pride. Well, if you were here this past weekend, Pastor David Palmasano talked about spiritual pride. Or was that the weekend before? Anyway, he, he did mention spiritual pride. I'm getting old. Don't hold me to weekend dates. Christians can have spiritual pride. They can. And we have to be on guard for it. In other words, look at me. David mentioned a great case. I'm serving, I'm doing all this great stuff for God. Why aren't you? And we kind of judge each other. We're prideful about how great we look in God's eyes. Because I must be looking great, because I'm ushering, I'm greeting, I'm parking cars, I'm in, I'm doing day compassion. Look at me. That's spiritual pride. Which brings up our fourth main point if you're taking notes. God hates all forms of pride. Worldly pride, spiritual pride, and just like that verse in Proverbs said, he will discipline us for having it, even us believers. Back to our text, verse 5. So we have to be on guard for pride. We'll pray about that maybe at the end. Verse 5 says, though, let's finish our Tower of Babel story. God sees what they're doing. He's the Lord. He knows. But look what verse 5 says. The Lord came down, came down to see the city. Sounds like in person, doesn't it? In a minute, we'll cover that. And the tower the people were building. Which some people have wondered, by the way, is that to- was that tower real? Is this just a Bible story? Well, there was a Greek historian called Herodotus. He wrote and claimed he personally saw it. He saw that not the whole thing, but the ruins of what was left. It still existed in Greek times. So it was real. And our, God's word said it was real. We should even need a Greek scholar to tell us it was real. But even architects and even people that have non-believers saw the, the tower. So it was real. But it says the Lord came down. The way that is originally worded, the language, it, it really implies in person Let me ask you this. Does God the Father, as far as we know, ever come to earth? I'll help you out. No. So, who of the Trinity takes human form? Jesus, exactly. We see all through Scripture different evidences. We'll see another one in a few more weeks of Wednesdays. Jesus, what we call pre-incarnate Jesus, comes to the earth. We believe, I believe, you can make your own mind up, this would be one of those times. God the Father doesn't need to. Jesus doesn't either. But it sounds like some part of the Trinity came in person. That would be Jesus, most likely. But let's read more. Verse 6. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us. Us, plural. Let us of the Trinity go down and confuse their language. That would be no problem for God the Father or the Holy Spirit or Jesus, but it says, let us. Let's go as a team and mess up their language so that they will not understand each other. That's another great verse. People say, there's no Trinity in the Bible. There's a great one right there. We made the word up, Trinity, but there's clear evidence of let us. What what do we see in Genesis creation? Let us make man in our image. Our, plural. Once again, the Trinity. So what's the result? God confused our language. We'll see in verse 8 what sort of happens. So the Lord scattered them from there, from this tower of Babel, this city of Babylon, all over the earth. And they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. So mankind, if you go back to what God told them to do in 9, remember he said, go multiply, scatter, fill the earth. They weren't doing it. They stopped on this plain of Shinar, built a giant city, a giant tower. God says, okay, I'm going to have to get involved here and fix this. I'm going to get you moving again. I'm going to mess up all your languages where you can't build anything constructive anymore. You'll have to spread out. And he sort of forced their hand. But let's go back to who told them to do this. Nimrod, the evil leader of that city, told him, don't listen to God, do what I say, be like me, be rebellious, be a cruel, evil person. Here's the result. An evil city with an evil tower that later turns into the Babylon. Where do the Israelites get carried to later in their history? Back to Babylon. Back to, and you can see this city, by the way, this Babylon and Babel, as it's called at the moment, it's just a picture of man being rebellious, and remember what they said? Let us make a name for ourselves." It's the first kind of picture we see all about me. Look at me, 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 I, 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 I. That goes back to Nimrod. See, he's not such a mighty hunter, is he? He's really a terrible person. But God knows, that verse we just read said God will judge him for his pride, he's taken care of, but God took control. Because God's in control, is he not? He's now steering humanity to spread out, fill the earth. So next week, the good news is we finally get to Abram, or Abraham as he'll turn into later. So we're through with some of the controversy. Next week, it's just Abram. So, let me pray, but let's kind of let's bring this whole thing back together. Maybe tonight at one of these moments, you felt like, you know, yeah, Dave, that was me. Maybe you're feeling some condemnation for some past bad decision you've made. Maybe you've read that verse of Noah drinking and realized, yeah, maybe I do drink too much. Maybe tonight's a good night to give that to the Lord. Or maybe you've been, like not like Nimrod, but you've been doing some things, In a way that wasn't glorifying the Lord, it was more glorifying yourself. Or for selfish reasons, you weren't fully committed to the Lord. If that's you, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in the comments. Let's just pray. But if you need to accept Jesus for the first time, maybe tonight has convicted you. I have got to get right with God. Please come see me. We'll pray together tonight. It's a simple prayer. And God will forgive anything and everything that you've burdened yourself coming in the door with. And can, you can leave here in complete freedom tonight. So let's just pray for that. Lord, tonight we've learned in more ways than one what not to do. Lord, help us um, be like those two good sons that know ahead and do the right thing. But Lord, we're just weak people like some of these guys in these stories, weak men and women that love you, but we just fail to make mistakes, um, even though we don't want to. So, Holy Spirit, help us change, help us be more like Jesus. And we need your help desperately to do that, Father. So, Lord, once again, tonight, if anybody is condemned or struggling, I pray you would lift them up, encourage them, restore them. And if any that still needs you, Lord, convict them to pray that prayer and leave here in complete freedom. We love you. We thank you. Praise Jesus for our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. See you next week. And if you need Jesus, let's talk.